I've got the ability to really envision a future that's dramatically different than the present, and um, I also have the ability to design you know, successful alternative paths, quite detailed ones to, to get there. Um, and I have the skill and ability to motivate, you know, whole bunches of people to go from, you know, average to excellent. So, and I like doing it. So I like transformation. I like, like vertical learning curves. I like big challenges. Um, and I like challenges that require, you know, getting 10,000 people to take one step to the left together and create an earthquake. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. Welcome to episode nine of the Active CEO Podcast. We're back with part two of our great interview with Mike DeNoma. Mike started off telling us about growing up in the USA and his wonderful start into the world of business in the Amazon jungle. He talks about the differences between Procter & Gamble and PepsiCo and then he expands into the world of banking and being CEO of some major banks he delves into what his strengths are and how he maximizes those as a leader. Going into part two here, we talk about what it's like to live in Myanmar and he's got some wonderful insights into working with KBZ Bank where where he started, 20,000 employees did not have a job description. He discusses around developing values there and goes into uh, so, some of his more exciting aspects outside of the workplace where he talks about his endurance challenges and starting with Ironman at the age of 50 and now as a 62-year-old right into the swing of things in ultra-marathon running. As we go to air, he's about to, to finish off a 238-mile Moab ultra-run in the USA. It's a tough event over multiple days. And I bet you he's pretty excited to get home and have a beer after this one. All right, enjoy the show. I suppose Myanmar's kind of going through their own earthquake at the moment with reforms happening there to open up foreign investment. So what do you see as some of the positive and negative effects for the people of Myanmar as foreign investment grows? Well, the challenge for Myanmar is that it's been closed off in the world for 50 years and under military dictatorship, and one of the casualties of that was um, well, two casualties. One, they didn't build any institutions, so it's quite extraordinary, but also um, the country used to have a, a superb educational system that they dismantled. Right? So some of the best doctors in Asia used to be from Myanmar, Burma, or whatever, and they dismantled it. So so what you have now is a, a you know, whole generations that uh, you know, they haven't been Educated in the right way, necessary trained in the right way. So, the company that uh, the bank that uh, that I'm at is um, where I'm CEO is. We've got 20,000 employees, and I came in. Not one of them had a job description. Not one of them has ever had an objective. Not one of them has ever had a personnel, you know, a performance review. Um, there's not one standard operating procedure in the entire institution. No department has ever had a budget. Um, 
It's extraordinary. I mean, you just think. I would have to say that Craig and myself are just sitting here looking at each other dumbfounded, so it's obviously uh, a tough gig, so to speak. Or a nice clean slate to yeah. Well, it's to funny, I always say like vertical learning curves. I remember I was here for about a month, I called my wife back. I have a daughter, I have six children, the youngest is still in high school, and you don't move your daughters in high school um, if you want to, don't want them to remember for the rest of their lives. But um, <laughs> So uh, I called my wife, and she goes, how's it going? I said, I said wow, I said. You can't imagine. I said, you know, no job descriptions, no this, no that. And um, she goes, well, you can fix it, can't you? And I said, I think so. She goes, wow, I never heard you say I think so before. I'm transforming <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mike, how long have you been there in Miramar? I've been there for, I guess, a year and a quarter now, mm-hmm. even a quarter or so. Interestingly, now everyone has a job description. You know how hard that is? It's unbelievably difficult. So, they all have job descriptions, we're, and we're moving. And I think we're – but it's, an ex, it's in some ways it's, it's a profound experience for me because some things have happened here that I've never experienced in my career before. So um, it's a Buddhist culture, uh, Myanmar. And um, the one thing about the employees, it's not their fault. They don't know what to do because they've never been told. Um, so um, – the uh, and the interesting thing is there's a hundred percent non-cynical desire to learn, and I I never and, and that's not true in the United States or New Zealand or Australia or Europe or almost any country. That's just not right. So so they really do want to learn um, if you would you would teach them. So what we did in February uh, this year is we um, came up with the mission, vision, values, and and all the employees have signed up to become the bank that the country needs and deserves, which is going to means we're going to have to become one of the best managed banks in the world. So they've all signed up for that. Um, we also sent out, uh, three, have three values, right? So three values for the, for the bank. And, um, there's two of the daughters of the founder are deputy CEOs here. They're millennials. They're quite, quite talented executives. And, uh, so one of them sent out uh, the uh, values we've agreed and they come up, we came up with three to try. So the first one, is courage, um, and but the um, uh, the uh, Pali word, there's a 2,500 year old Buddhist word, is, is theti, so it's courage. The second one is perseverance, but the Pali word is called viriya, v i r y a, but it's much more sophisticated word than the English word perseverance because um, the Pali word viriya has three types of perseverance. There's initiating perseverance so you know the, the really the will to drive the perseverance to, to to start at something and stick with it and then there's overcoming perseverance which is when you hit really just a real significant barrier the first time to overcome it and then they've got sustaining perseverance so it's pretty clever right i mean the english word is one word they've got three different meanings for it and then the third value we put down was um meta which is a loving kindness. So we check with us um, um, a, uh, a, uh, a, a Bernie's professor at Oxford. He's a professor of meditation, Myanmar professor, and uh, he's a monk. And uh, he said, we're the first country in the world that would have the value for loving kindness. Right. So, so, but we wanted to make sure the employees understood. So the country has uh, 10% of the population has a bank account, 30% has electricity, but over 90% of dual SIM smartphones. So it's quite an extraordinary situation. So our employees 
don't have email, most of them. I'd say we have 20,000, they don't have email. So what we had to do is we send it out on texts and things like that. They have mobile phones. And I think when we have 3,000 laptops, you know, even desktops. So so the one of the daughters sent out said, listen, this is the first time we've ever asked you anything. And um, we, but we, this is very important. We want, we want to know if you agree with these values and which of the values is more important to you. So could you please, we sent out Monday, you got 72 hours, please respond by Wednesday at the close of business. So um, on Wednesday, uh, or Thursday morning, I came in, and um, I think I came in Wednesday. It wasn't even over yet. And um, so I asked one of the folks, I said, hey, did you hear about, did we get any responses on our uh, on the survey? And, uh, and, and the person said, yeah, I think we got 4,800. I said, no way we got 4,800. I, I can tell you in a Western company, you'd probably get 400, right? I mean, you're not going to. So, so I said, send the person in who... Um, who was in charge of it. So the person came in and I said, we didn't get 4,800 responses, did we? And she said, no, no way. I said, well, how many do we get? She goes, 17,698. <laughs> it's amazing. And they voted for loving kindness to be the number one value. So I thought, okay, this company, these people, these employees are worth fighting for. I mean, it's, I've never had anything, anything come anywhere close to that in my entire career. It kind of epitomizes the Asian culture where it is, you know, it is more of a family caring type community atmosphere um, than what you probably see in some of the Western countries. Yeah, but even more than that, I mean, I, in Asian countries, loving kindness is, a, is, okay, this is, loving kindness means loving kindness there, you know? So yeah. this doesn't mean customer service, customer centric, you know, this kind of, so, so, so it's actually, it's, it's, it's an exceptional value with exceptional sort of impact and import. So, so yeah, so I look, just the fact they signed up for it, just the fact that they all voted. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Is, and and yeah. would you say that something like this is really adding to the satisfaction of leading this team? Yeah, I'm not fight for them. I mean, otherwise, it's, this, is a, this, is, this is go down to the salt mine every day and chip away with a little, with a fork. <laughs> you know? I mean, this, is, this isn't easy. But yeah, look, I think, I, think, I think the chance of transforming the bank is, you know, I, you know I'd say, and then we've done a really innovative deal with uh, Huawei, so we're going to do something that will be innovative globally for any bank, so that's pretty cool. So yeah, I said, I think, when I started, the chance, probability of success that I could transform it and we'd be the best managed bank in the world was probably zero, you know, maybe 1%. I would say transformation is probably up to ah, 40% probability of success. Best managed bank in the world, maybe 20. Wow. Wow. So 20%. 20%. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, as many miles before we sleep, but I mean, amazing. It's. Uh, yeah. Could you could you just describe for us what a standard work day would be there? Well, it's you know it's a lot of meetings. So what we've done is we've created a, a general management model. It's called Value Center General Managers. So these uh, these folks are, are all profit accountable. We even charge them the cost of capital. So we've got twenty of those. So um, there are very few truly profit accountable executives left in any company in the world anymore. So. Almost every company is functionalized, I think, to the detriment of most businesses. Because functional heads are not profit accountable, 
they have a cost budget generally. So it's easy to make a cost budget. So the line businesses are tougher. So we've got 20 of these, and a lot of them are young, and um, and I would say over half of them speak no English. And that is by design because otherwise what you're doing is you're rewarding linguistic competence and not managerial or executive competence. So we just do simultaneous translation. So the day will be with meetings of simultaneous translation because I don't I don't care. I mean, it's my fault I don't speak Minma language. It's not their fault they don't speak English. Um, and that's what I we did in I did in China Trust as well, even though I speak some Chinese. Um, that's what I did the same charter if we would in Korea or different places. So, um, so that second is, um, so what you have to do is you, you need to, the problem we have is that generally, even if we have executives, most executives are used to flying a plane, right? So the challenge we have daily is that if you get people to come in, there's no plane. (laughs) There's literally no plane for the function. there's, there's no, there's no report. So there's, you know, they're sitting on the tarmac. There might be a wheel next to them and they're going broom, broom, you know, to take off. So now because they're not aircraft engineers and all that, what you need to do is what we're doing is we're building what will be a world-class target operating model behind everyone. So that has to go on because otherwise the urgent pushes out the important and, um, and, when you're transforming a company, if, if all you do is try and fix the buckets of shit, you just keep, you, you can do it a long time. And if you do the right things, what I have learned, if you do the right things in the wrong order, you will fail. So, so you need to catch down the organization. And what we're doing is we're building this world-class bank behind the, uh, uh, the day-to-day. So we've set, we've set target operating models to be best managed, say, in 10 years for risk, for HR, for the businesses. Um, for finance, and then we gap analysis versus today, and today we're terrible. Um, but then we've designed two-year interim target operating models that we're building to now that will break the back of the, the full thing. So so what we're going to have at the end of it, if it works out, is we're going to have um, really a, a fantastic institution. Uh, it's some pretty incredible work that you're doing there. So we're going to change gears here a little bit. Uh, so successful people know that the more you give, the more you get. Um, you have now raised more than $1 million for charity. Why mm. is the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children so important to you? Well, I, I raised money for that. and Well, I've been a, a director for that for years. The, um, the challenge uh, I got involved with that is that um, child pornography on the Internet um, – used to be dramatically worse than it is. And uh, one of my sisters is helping out the center, and um, and she called me up and she said, Mike, this is really terrible. I didn't realize. So what happened was that because um, uh, pedophiles are, are insatiable, they will pay any amount of money uh, for image, imagery of um, you know children. Um, so uh, what was happening is they were – putting this business online and credit cards are being used and other forms of payment. And, um, so what happened was, um, then it was growing dramatically. And then you would have in some countries, parents even putting their children into the business kind of thing. So it was just a horrible thing. Um, it would even involve, uh, the rape of infants. Um, so this is terrible. So what happened was they were trying to figure out how do they, um, 
how do they deal with it? So I flew into Washington. I was at Standard Chartered at the time, running the Consumer Bank globally, and um, I met with them. And um, what they're trying to do is they were going to they were going to try and make it illegal, or they were going to try and prosecute people whose credit cards were used um, for uh, for purchasing it. And and what I said was, I said, look, it's not going to work. One, because there's a lot of banking secrecy around the world. But the second thing is, a lot of credit cards get stolen, right? So so the issue is, we're going to have to figure out. We have to figure out a different way. And um, and I said, I can guarantee there's no bank on earth that wants to be in this business. Um, so what had happened was, just say you go, uh, you have a fishing tackle shop or a fishing shop. You you have a uh, a merchant sort of license, right, to use credit cards. Um, and then what you're doing is you're using it for child pornography. So so the challenge was we set a goal to eradicate the commercial viability of uh, child pornography on the Internet. And this was a while ago, by 2008. I testified before Congress. Um, we created a financial coalition globally of, um, of banks. The Standard Chartered employees dedicated uh, the money for um, uh, a campaign and uh, we shot the campaign. It's called Light a Million Candles, and we just wanted to create awareness for it. Light a Million Candles. I think we lit three million candles around the world, and it was like weeks. And um, and um, what happened was we came up with a way that uh, to stop it. And the way we did it was um, law enforcement takes a long time to build a case, and to try and legally close down these websites was difficult. And then they just move them. So so what we did is I said, look. You can handle it easier, and we had a way where if the um, if somebody identifies a site, they notify uh, the central team, and then what happens is you put a credit card set to decline card, so you know the card's going to be declined. And what happens is the information comes back with the merchant code and the bank code. And then what we did is what you do is you notify the bank, the bank immediately shuts down the site for not adhering to the. Uh, the rules of the card association. So effectively shut it down. Very clever. Which is great. Now, it's gone on to Bitcoin and, and things like that um, now. But um, so, but I, I've raised money for all different children's charities, for AIDS, orphans, missing exploited children, for, for all different things. I mean, everybody suffers in life and as they say, some suffer maybe too little and some suffer too much and it's usually children who suffer too much. Yeah. So, so obviously to raise money, you did that through endurance sports. Uh, you commenced it at the age of 50. What was the catalyst to take up physical endurance challenges when many people have retirement in their eyes? I was, uh, well, I was the guy who did all these standard chartered marathon sponsorships, you know, around the world. So we kept, cause it's just a good, it's a good thing for business and all that. So we did the Nairobi marathon and, uh, the most I'd ever done was a 10 K and, uh, so we went to Nairobi, and I was the good thing about being the sponsor is you get to go to the front, <laughs> front at the start. And we didn't have championships or anything; it was just you know a gun start. So, so I was up at the front of the starting line at six a.m. or something, and um, I bumped into this uh, young guy um, next to me, and um, a Kenyan guy, and uh, he had sunglasses on, and he was, his you know his his left arm was tied to another guy's right arm with a little leather cord and I realized that he was blind 
And I thought, Jesus, this, this guy's going to get run over on the start. Yeah, because everybody, you know, starts everybody's pushing him and all that stuff. So, so I get behind him and, you know, and block and um, all that starting pistol goes off and boom, everybody goes running and I get knocked down and everybody runs over the top of me. And um, <laughs> so then I get up and I do my little trudge into the finish line for my 10K and I asked somebody at the finish, I said, so how the blind guy do? And they said, oh, he won. He won the race. <laughs> What do you mean? Won a race? So I went and talked to him, and his, this guy's name was Henry Wanyoki, and uh, he uh, he went to bed, I guess, when he was nineteen, seeing and woke up some sort of river parasite or something blind. He thought he heard kids in the he thought they were playing in the middle of the night. Um, so he went into depression and and all that, and you know, blind in Africa, he, he, huh? So, um, so then, um, so he, he talked with a bunch of counselors and all that, and took, he went, went to commit suicide and lots of things like that. And then one of the counselors said, well, he used to play soccer a lot and he run. He says, well, you love, you love to run. Why don't you run? And so then his childhood friend, um, started to run with him. And so I thought, well, that story. So then I, I said, okay, fine. So then I, uh, we, we sent him to Singapore for a marathon there and he won the 10 K then there. <laughs> and then, uh, so then we, I sent him to Hong Kong for our Hong Kong marathon, and he, he won the half marathon in Hong Kong. You know, the, the, whole, the regular one, just not anything else. Him and, uh, him and his buddy, and, uh, and uh, Joseph. And uh, so then he went to the Beijing Olympics, and he, he, won the, he won the marathon for the Paralympics, I think, or whatever, he, 232 he ran. And, uh, and so they think that his, his, his friend, Joseph, must be able to run like 215, or you know what I mean? Because... Yeah, it's hard to find someone to run that fast as a partner. Yeah, he's guiding him. So, so but long story short, so I remember when after that, you know, the Kenya thing, I thought, Christ, if if this guy can overcome blindness, I can overcome laziness. <laughs> so, so I said, I'm going to sign up for something that I know that I think there's no chance on earth I can finish, and I'm going to do it and raise money for uh, preventing blindness, you know, child blindness in Africa. So uh, I signed up for an Ironman. <laughs> As you did. I signed up for Ironman New Zealand or something. And uh, so then I put uh, endurance coach into Google, and uh, a Brendan Downey's name came up, right? So he had, I think was, his thing was called endurance coach. So I sent him an email, blah, blah, blah. And um, he sends one back. And so then I said, well, maybe we should talk because I really need to examine your credentials. for <laughs> so, well, Those credentials aren't too bad, by the way. Yeah. So I call him up and uh, his credentials. His credentials are great, and I'm like, okay, okay, you're fine. I mean, you're fine. He goes, well, what about your credentials? So he goes, uh, so so he goes, so what's your marathon time? I said, I don't have a clue. I said, <laughs> I've never run a marathon or a half marathon. I've done a couple of ten k's, pretty slow. And he goes, so you're a cyclist? I said, I used to love it when I was a kid. I used to love it when I was a kid. And um, and he said. How long ago was that? I said, pretty long, pretty long time. <laughs> and then uh, he goes, I'm afraid to ask about swimming. And I said, ah, swimming. I said, that's my worst. I said, <laughs> I said every 50 meters, I'm blowing bubbles with those other little kids. So, uh, so, he says, so, he, so I said, can you train me? He goes, Jesus. He said, listen, he goes, he goes, I'll train you under one condition. I said, okay. He goes, you find the shortest triathlon on the planet. Okay. And he goes, and he trained for it so you don't hurt yourself. And if you can, you can finish that, he goes, I'll train. So I said, oh, 
okay, I'm on it. So I finally, luckily it's one of the shortest triathlons was in, it was outside of Cincinnati. I have a farm in Kentucky and, you know, the kids go back in the summer. So I had this little sprint triathlon. It was, um, it was a 600 meter swim. It was like, I don't know, 2K on the bike. And I think, I don't know, 500 yard run or some ridiculous thing. Right. And, um, <laughs> so I trained sort of, and, and I arrived that morning for that thing. And they acted like it's Iron Man. They, you know, they're writing this grease pencil on your shoulder and all that. And there's, <laughs> so there's like 200 people, and um, it's a scissor swim lane. You just swim up and down the 50-meter pool 12 times. You know, you just scissor swim. Yep. Uh, like and they're, they're dropping you in the pool every five seconds. So I'm like number one. I'm like 100. And then there's a guy with green goggles that he had on for the whole hour before the thing started. His whole head swelled up. But, the only thing I remember, but he's behind me as one of one. And um, so dropping everybody. Now, I had a few swimming lessons, but I still hadn't quite figured out swimming, just to be clear. So so the number 99 goes in, plop, this in a way. The I go in, plop, and the dumb idiot with the green goggles jumps right on my back. You know? <laughs> so he jumps right in on me. So I have a panic attack, first panic attack I've ever had in my life. You guys ever had one? No, uh, I've had one. Yeah, when I went to okay. altitude in Boulder and raced there a couple of days after being there, and they're, they're horrible. Really good. You, every molecule in your body thinks you're going to die. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, it's not fun. So every molecule is going, "You're going to die. You're going to die." But then my brain kicked in and said, "It's okay. You can stand up." Because I was in the low end of the pool <laughs> in the pedaling pool. <laughs> yeah. So then I start like swimming, floating, floating, swimming, and I'll tell you what's funny. It's 600 meters. The hundred people behind me passed me, <laughs> and they're going in, and they're going in in five second drops, right? So I'm just kind of floating, well, floating along, you know. So, um, so I'm in the last fifty meters, I'm the last guy in the pool, and I'm, you know, halfway, I'm floating, you know, a slight forward momentum, floating a little bit toward the, uh, toward the thing, and my wife has had it. She's had it. You know? <laughs> She's, so she leans over the side of the pool. And screamed at the top of her lungs, "Why are you swimming so slow?" And uh, I burst out laughing. Even in the pool, I thought she thinks I'm trying to look like a complete idiot. You know, <laughs> why would I? She thinks I'm trying to have this public humiliation just on purpose. So I finally get to the end of the pool. I get out, and two of my sons—they're both little then—and um, they run up, they grab my legs, they go, "Dad, you really suck at swimming." And, uh, and so I, so I did, but then I finished that and I finished that. But then what I did is I realized I did second swimming, but I was really committed to finish the, the Ironman because I just noticed with my kids, they would give up too easy, you know, on stuff. They go, oh, I'm no good at this. I'm no good at that. I mean, geez, you're, you're young. You're a kid, you know, you can get good at it. So, so I did, you know, I did, I actually I got good enough to swimming. I finished Ironman New Zealand. I finished an Ironman Hawaii. And, um, and I just, I wanted to do it to show that you can be a beginner and you can be terrible. But if, if you're willing to be a beginner and, you know, struggle through it, you can, you can achieve a lot. Right. So, so that's what I did. So, you know, that's and I read, an amazing story and amazing achievement. But I also understand that you've gone on to ultra distance running. Now, I, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. Well, so I did, I did the Ironman and I thought, okay, well, let's, 
let's just oh, the funny thing. So the Iron Man, my strategy was I'm going to be the most cheerful back marker. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be king of the back markers, but I'm going to be the most cheerful sort of <laughs> love of the moment back marker, you know, so the whole sort of Buddhist love the moment thing, which I think really does work. Because I remember Brendan used to tell me, like I like, you know what a lot of people DNF is because they set some stupid time thing, right? For the room. And then they don't hit it. And then, you know, in the races, you go up and down emotionally, right? So then you, a lot of people quit, right? A lot of people DNF for dumb reasons, right? Um, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to do love the moment. So I remember even in Ironman New Zealand, I'm back there pedaling away with a back marker and, you know, on the bike and I'm, you know, going by cows or something. going, I love you cows, you know, or something like that. So I'm, I'm doing this, doing that. Apparently there's some woman behind me, you know, for miles. <laughs> and uh, so she comes up beside me. Finally, she goes, will you just shut up? <laughs> <laughs> she would, that would have been an Australian. I said, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So, but then, so what I did is I just kept going um, longer, longer. So I did, uh, you know, 508 miles, 48, it's called uh, Furnace 508. It's 508 miles, 48 hours, Death Valley, up and down Everest sort of mountain heights. And, and then I did, um, you know, the longer runs and, so I did Spartathlon, I've done Badwater, I've done Nordic Dragon, a 175-pound sled. And then those are all 135 milers. And then I did Spartathlon's 150, I did a Brazilian 160, and then I did a 205 last year. And this coming up is a 238-mile. And these are miles, yes. This is not kilometers. Yeah, these are miles. These yeah. are, I ran the length of I ran the length of Taiwan, and, you know, different things like that. But what I think what you find is that it becomes um, not spiritual, but you really are so far out there that uh, you know it's interesting. So it is it is tough. It's uh, it's mental, and you're doing it for kids, so you, you keep going and. Um, and and I'll tell you, the interesting thing was um, I was doing this 508 mile bike race and um it was horrible i gotta tell you you sit on that saddle for 40 hours straight literally no sleep hallucinate your brains out but not only that every every shock in the road and these are some really horrible roads it goes through your body right so everything's killing you um so it's 48 hour time limit i'm i'm i think 30 miles from the finish, I have like an hour and a half or an hour 45 to go time-wise to the thing, uphill into the wind to get to the finish. And I, lose, and I lost motor control in my hands, you know. So, 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 um, so I'm doing love the moment, love the moment. And what I found in these races, it's the left side of your brain that you always just have to shut up, right? So the left side of my brain is like, dude, if you're going to come up with something better than love the moment, we're stopping. You know, we're, we're calling it quits because, you know, if you're losing motor control. So I'm thinking, okay, fine. All right. Come on, right side of the brain. Come up with something that's going to keep us going. Come up with some way to, you know, finish this race. I'm thinking, 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 thinking. And then I come up with it and I motor on and I finish. I finish that thing with like a minute, 30 seconds to spare. The closest finish ever in the history of the race. Right. And that's, what I came up with. Like, um for a 10k running race, like just about missing the cutoff by about 0.2 of a second, right? Yeah. So, um, but the interesting thing was what I came up with was 
the shutdown on the left side of my brain made me finish and makes me do some of these other races is I thought, you know what? When you're 90 years old, laying in an old age home, shitting and pissing in a bedpan, you would give anything in the world to be on this bike. That's a dose of reality right there, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So I'm because going out tomorrow morning to ride a hundred mile. <laughs> there you go. But it's true, right? I mean, it's you know, life is short. Then you die. So come on. So you know, you see life as transient, and you feel it's really important to do whatever it takes to enrich your life. With such a creative and and very complex world that you live in, do you use strategies such as meditation and mindfulness in your daily life? Yeah, yeah, I meditate every day. I mean, the great thing about Tony Menma is, I mean, I started meditating a while ago, but, you know, it's Theravada Buddhism here, and it's a cradle. So I get up, I actually get up every morning, every day at 3.30. We go to a, I go to a, um, a temple, meditate from uh, 4 to 5.30 every day. And then uh, I come back, do my training, and then off to work, and then uh, back home and do it again. But the meditation is... Uh, is fantastic. And I think the interesting thing about meditation is that it really helps you be a better executive um, in many ways. So one of the most interesting um, things about Buddhism is um, it's non-theistic. It doesn't, it's, it includes any religion. You can be Catholic and a Buddhist. They don't, they don't care. Um, but, you know, they just think things are unskillful thinking. They think everyone's mentally ill and they think everyone needs to be better equipped to handle um, you know, the suffering that comes with being a human being. But one of the interesting things is, is their definition of patience. And, um, and this is what I think has is, is really helped me as a CEO, is that the definition of pa- patience in Buddhism is the maintenance of non-aggression, yeah. which yeah. is really a good definition. <laughs> yeah, great that definition. Really yeah, because that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's aggression. The problem, you know, patience is the maintenance of non-aggression. Right. So, um, it sounds so simple when you say it like that. Yeah, I mean, but as a CEO, that's probably one of the things that, you know, you just have to be patient. You have to have quite a bit of humor. Um, because, you know, if you're the if CEO's having a bad day, everybody has a bad day. So, CEOs aren't allowed to have bad days. You know, that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, Mike, we all know that smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Uh, yeah, I, do, I do things for the first time all the time, generally. So, uh, Well, uh, let's see. Yesterday, I, I figured out how to start up a Delaware C Corporation for my son's uh, e-commerce startup. So that was good. So I registered that. Um, 10 million shares kind of thing yeah, I figured all that stuff so that was, that was quite good um, uh, on the training stuff I always try to do something different, new, whatever so um, those types of things um, we put in we probably put in the biggest training structure than any I don't know, any, any organization so we put in this this different organization structure just uh, yesterday for uh, establishing 103 trainers um, throughout the country, um, which is kind of interesting, quite a different mobilization thing. Um, I took, uh, I do, uh, I, I've gone to, they have a, this weird street fighting in a ring thing, left way. So I've done left way training here now as well. So that's, you're allowed to, uh, elbows, 
uh, headbutt. <laughs> Sounds like an Iron Man swim. Yeah. Well, yeah, an Iron Man swim's worse because they got guns and knives and they swim. <laughs> Um, look, Mike, uh, probably one of the last questions from me is I'd like to ask you who's had the biggest impact on, on your career and, and why so? Uh, you know, I think the biggest impact on my career was getting married and having a family. I think, uh, I don't know, I think men, well, at least me, I mean, it, just working for your, yourself is, is one thing, but, you know, having to provide for families a different thing. Um, so that, and then I, I don't know, I learned a lot from my family, my interesting kids. You have kids? Do you have kids? You guys have kids? Uh, I, I have kids. Um, Craig no. hasn't had that pleasure just yet. <laughs> but they're extraordinary. And I, you know, a lot of my, my kids have a lot better qualities than I do. You know, you can learn from them. And um, my wife is extraordinarily adaptable, as you can probably imagine. So, uh, you know, learn from me. And then you learn a lot from your employees. So I've had some good bosses, but I think actually my family, my kids, um, they just, you know, when you really pay attention, they have some really cool strengths and things you can learn from. So, um, and I, I've just had a, I've had a chance to work for some great companies, great bosses, and but really more than that, just great employees with, you know, some good cultures. Um, so Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and, and seeing your resilience, your wide array of uh, different areas that you've worked in, your knowledge as a business leader, and your just your real desire to make a difference in the world. Oh, absolutely, and I've certainly enjoyed it, and I know that we could just go on for hour or night, hour just listening to some of your stories and learning from you, so um, I'd would like to say very much appreciate your time, Mike. It's been great. No, the pleasure's been mine, gentlemen. Thank you very much. You see, a wellness tip this time is around um, being disconnected a little bit. It wasn't that long ago that we didn't have mobile phones, um, and now they're sort of attached to us like it's a, a critical third arm. Yeah, we, we use them all the time, and our mind is constantly moving when we're using digital um, technology and especially with phones because you don't only have the visual aspect you've got sounds you've got vibrations working and it's constantly um, distracting you from other things in life and, that, and also to add into the uh, other component is the blue light so you certainly if you're taking your phone to bed and it's on the bedside table or whatever it happens to be uh, that light is certainly something that can really uh, disrupt those the correct sleep patterns yeah i think on average people go and check their phone or, or want to check it, their apps, their Facebook, their emails, every five minutes. Mm. And it, it's incredibly disrupting on our life. It doesn't allow us to relax. It doesn't let our mind recover as it should every single day. Yep. And, and as corny as it sounds, Craig, uh, that, that trick that you see in many households where you have to put your phone in the little basket um, at dinner time and, and family time, absolutely brilliant simple idea i think it's something that we probably should adhere to yeah i know with my wife we don't take any phones into our room it's mm. our bedroom it is they are left in the lounge and we make a real point of that it's really really important um you know at the dinner table as well we quite often you go up to a restaurant and how often do you see four out of 
four out of four people in a family sitting at a table and they're texting. Yep. Well, hopefully not each other, but I'm sure they're texting <laughs> other people. Yep. It's a real different social world nowadays. Well, and certainly that, that basic skill of how to communicate and interact with people, um, certainly for families, is learn at the dining room table or in the kitchen. And to, to take that skill away by just incessantly using a mobile device um, is certainly at a detriment to our children. Definitely. Well, it's been a fantastic show today, Ben. We got to speak with Mike Denoma from the USA, and he's based in Myanmar at the moment. Yeah, we'll get that on the crack, eh? Just go. All right, it's been a fantastic show today, Ben. Wonderful insights and, and understandings around leadership and life from a wonderful man, Mike Denoma, who's based in Myanmar, currently working at KBZ Bank. Just incredible. Some of the things that he's done in his life, and but really the thing that you can tell is just his passion and, and love for his people. And he really gets an understanding that it's about the people. Oh, he certainly does. And he also, you know, he's got that in, ingrained nature to take initiative, yeah. to show courage and, and to really, you know, as, as he said, at right at the beginning of his career, he sent a letter to a billionaire yeah. and said, look, I want to come work with you in the Amazon rainforest. What a way to start. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people feel, oh, look, you know, there's no way I can connect with Bill Gates or Richard Branson or someone that is a billionaire or someone that's extremely successful because they go, oh, no, they won't, they won't contact me. Yeah. But is living proof that if you just give it a chance, you never know, you might end up working in the Amazon rainforest oh. for a billionaire. Incredible. And then to come the full circle where he's at KBZ now, Bank in Miramar, and the values that he's brought into it, which is courage, perseverance, and what he was quite amazed at, loving kindness. It's really um, a full credit to him to bring that to some, some, a newer organization. Well, there's a challenge for every CEO leader out there. See if you can get 17,500 responses from a 20,000 staff on, a, on your values. Yep, just, just an incredible achievement. And you can tell already that he's really enjoying it and he will take that organization a long way. And I know when he just scraped the surface when it came around his ultra running and his endurance <clears throat> type challenges that he takes on, what incredible. I mean, I would have liked to know a little bit more about what it was like to tow a sled across the Arctic Circle for 150 miles. I mean, that's an inc like, you've got a place where you just can't, you can't see land, like it's ice. And I, I particularly want to um, talk about his story about his left and his right brain when he was trying to figure out why he was doing this. And it got down to a really simple thing. You know, one day you're going to be in a retirement village not being able to do this. So quite obviously, this isn't so bad right at the moment. It's all about living in the now. Yep. And yep. it is make sure that the people around him are also living in the now, not, not just kind of wasting the opportunity and the short life that we have. Sometimes the simple things are the best, Craig, and, and I think Mike really sums that up. Oh, he certainly does. And, you know, this is the active CEO with the ordinary don't belong. And I can tell you now, Mike is definitely not one of those ordinary people. He's extremely extraordinary and he touched, he's touched so many people's lives. Oh, that's, I mean, we didn't even really get into so much of his charity type work. It just, that was incredible. Some of the, his way of thinking around some of the real scourges in society today, just incredible. Yeah, it's about having, you know, a higher purpose than just going for a run or mm. just um, raising some money. He, he's really passionate and really thinks through it as around, okay, how can we 
change it and make it a better world for these people that are being exploited, um, that don't quite have the opportunities that many of us have in the world. And really, to wrap it up, what a humble man. Extremely humble. And just an absolute pleasure to talk to. So we hope you enjoyed listening to the show. Um, Really important, you know, get out there, share it with your friends. This is some great content. You don't get to hear from people like this every single day. Um, So jump onto, you know, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Android, whatever you're listening to the podcast on. Put a review up there. Give the show a rating. Send us an email sometime. We'd love to hear from you. And, you know, if you've got a CEO leader that you would like us to interview, yeah, feel free to drop us a line. Look, absolutely. There's no harm in asking. And uh, as we learned from Mike, you know, that's how he got started. And let's bring it on. You know, Craig and myself are excited about this project. So help, help support us and let's do this together. This is the active CEO where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.